I love cowboy movies. Uh, basically, they're fairly straightforward and uh, the characters are color-coded so you know exactly what's going on. Basically, the goody uh, rides into town and he's normally sort of dressed in white and uh, the baddies are the people who own the town and they own the sheriff and they don't like outsiders coming in and they're generally the ones dressed in black and the goodies are the ones often who have the great one-liners. For me, the best Hollywood cowboy actor of all time was John Wayne. He came up with the immortal one-liner of explanation for all that he did. A man's gotta do what a man's gotta do. It's a great explanation, isn't it? The tension, the conflicts grow in the, in the plot and there's normally basically a gunfight at high noon in the main street that gets it all sorted out. And to me, that's a bit like how Mark chapter 11 and 12 feel. Uh, Jesus came into Jerusalem riding on a, on a donkey, proclaiming himself to be the long promised king of Israel. And then the following day, we see him walking into the temple, the very religious heart of Israel, and he challenges the authorities. He proclaims that their whole system of religion is corrupt. He disrupts the life of the temple. He kicks over the money changers' uh, tables and, he, and, and, and the, he, those selling animals. He drives them out of the temple. And all the while he was teaching, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now that there is fighting talk and you can see the conflict growing in the narrative. This man from the north was noticed if you look at uh, chapter 11 and verse 18. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. Now, I hope that you are enjoying this wonderful uh, series of little cameos of churches around the UK that are part of the Fellowship of Independent Evangelical Churches. What has been striking to me, listening to what is going on in Harper Church in Glasgow and Mount Pleasant in Swansea and City Evangelical Church and Trinity Church in Sunderland, is the way that these churches are modelling being houses of prayer for all nations. Uh, with all the different nationalities and ethnic groups uh, that are uh, coming together and being united in their common faith in Jesus to be part of this new spiritual temple. And what we're seeing in this chapter really is, is, the, is Jesus declaring the demise, the, the destruction of the old system of religion that rejects the king and the new temple he's, that he's bringing about. Uh, this is a radical change. This is going to be the end of the temple, the end of the sacrifices. And the leaders in Israel sense that there's a major threat to their authority. And so with verse 27, the tension moves one notch higher. As Jesus returns to the temple, uh, they arrived again in Jerusalem. And while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders came to him. I mean, the authorities were out looking for him. And from verse 27, uh, Mark records seven events of conflict between the leaders and Jesus. And the first issue is the one of authority. Whose authority? In verses 27 to 33. Look at verse uh, 28. By what authority 
Are you doing these things, they asked. And who gave you authority to do this? You know, this, this driving out people out of the temple. Who do you think you are, Jesus? Who gave you permission to, to disrupt the business of the temple? Now, people ask questions for different reasons, don't they? And um, this really was a rather hostile one. They've already rejected him. And so look at how uh, Jesus responds to them in verse 29. Jesus replied, I'll ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. Now, it's a shrewd answer. Uh, Jesus knew that it threw them on the horns of our dilemma. As Mark explains in verse 31, they discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin... Well, they they feared the people for everyone held that John really was a prophet. But while his answer could look evasive, Jesus was opening up to them the possibility of really coming to know him better. He gave them the opportunity to engage with him if they will stop their public fence sitting and commit. John the Baptist's ministry, as we saw at the beginning of the series in Mark, was to prepare for the Messiah. John proclaimed the need for Israel to repent and get ready for the Messiah. And the Messiah would come and baptize people with the Holy Spirit. John baptized with water. He would baptize with the Spirit. And then as Jesus was baptized by John, God demonstrated that Jesus was the the promised Messiah. The heavens opened, the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove, and God proclaimed, you are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Remember these words as we go on and look at the, uh, the parable that Jesus tells here in a moment. If they are willing to see that John the Baptist was heaven sent, then they would have to acknowledge that Jesus was their Messiah. But they're not willing to commit to that. Uh, They were too frightened, really, I suppose, uh, to denounce John as a false prophet because of his popularity among the crowds. And so they offer this very political answer, well, we, we don't know. And so Jesus refuses to engage with their question on authority. Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Well, what what do you make of Jesus yourself? Who do you think he is? Many people don't like to commit to answering that question. They want to maintain the seeming intellectual ground of keeping an open mind. But what's clear from this part of Mark's gospel is that those who are unwilling to commit themselves to Jesus, well, Jesus refuses to commit himself to them. Those who cannot be honest about themselves cannot be honest about Jesus. But amazingly, Jesus does give them a parable to consider. And like the parables earlier in Mark, it is an invitation to listen with faith and to act. Remember their question, whose authority they ask? And if they had ears to hear, Jesus answers them and does so with a strong warning. 
Take a look at the next section in chapter 12 uh, to see that Jesus acts with the authority of God's son. Whose authority? Well, the answer here is it's the authority of a son. This parable was not difficult for them to understand. Indeed, verse 12 of chapter 12 tells us that they got the message very clearly. This was a parable against them. The imagery of a vineyard was a common one from the Old Testament about Israel. If you think about our earlier reading from Isaiah chapter 5 verse 1, it says this, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest of vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delights in. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. So familiar was this imagery uh, of Israel being like a vineyard that in the temple they, they stood in right at that point there was a huge golden sculpture of a vine twisting along the top of the walls and so the meaning of the parable was very clear God is the owner of the vineyard the vineyard was Israel and the tenants are the religious leaders of Israel they are the ones who historically kept rejecting God's servants the prophets the prophets kept calling them back to faithfulness and obedience to God, but they kept rejecting those servants. From Elijah, who was chased into the wilderness, to Zechariah, who was stoned to death, Israel had this long history of rejecting the servants that God had sent them. And God was looking for fruit from Israel, but was receiving none. And what strikes me as I read this parable is the amazing patience and love of God. God continued to reach out to these rebellious tenants despite the terrible treatment of his servants uh, and, and the terrible dis disrespect they showed to the servants and therefore they showed to God. And let's be honest, if you were a landlord asking for unpaid rent from your tenants, my guess is that you would have kicked out your tenants long before God pronounces this upon Israel. Look at the end of verse 5. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. Do you remember the words that Jesus heard at his baptism? You, my son, whom I love, with you I'm well pleased. He had one left, a son whom he loved. And they, they wanted to know, didn't they, who did Jesus think he was? Well, here's the answer. The one and only beloved son of God. This is who Jesus thinks he is. This is bigger than a cowboy western movie. This is not just a king coming in. This is God coming in through his son. Here's the one who's unique from all the others. There were many servants, but just one son. 
They had no ownership, but here was the true heir. By what authority do you do these things? By the authority of being the son of God. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all saying, they will respect my son. Now at this point in the parable, Jesus turns from history into a, a prophetic message of what's going to happen at the rest of that the week coming up, knowing fully what they intended to do with him. Verse seven, but the tenants uh, said to one another, this is the heir, come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. And so here Jesus puts his finger on our hard heartedness the hard-heartedness of humanity. Uh, these tenants kill the son, not in ignorance, but with full knowledge. They want to take the vineyard and make it their own through their rebellion. And this is the story of humanity. People think that they can dispose with God or even kill God and then act as if they are God. Last week, um, there was an article in the Guardian newspaper where there were interviews with different atheists, including a Satanist called Adam Cardone, who's quoted as saying this, I only know one God and that's me. I am responsible for my own destiny. Now, we'd love to think that, wouldn't we, of ourselves, that, that we are the center of the universe, that we determine meaning and truth and beauty, that we determine our destiny. In 2019, the co-op released the top 10 most popular songs picked at funerals in the United Kingdom. Uh, there was not one Christian hymn in the top 10, which reminds us of how far our nation has slid away. But the most popular song at UK funerals was Frank Sinatra's I Did It My Way. I mean, it, it, it was... It made me smile that this is what Donald Trump had played as he flew off in Air Force One for his last trip as the US president. I did it my way. This is, this is human nature. We think that we're the center of the universe. Regrets, we have a few, but not enough to mention. We want to take the benefits of living in God's world, but, but like ungrateful children, refuse to acknowledge or thank the God who created it and who created us. And so we love to cling to any science that points to chaos and rejects evidence of intelligent design. We cling to any philosophy that avoids the claims of God upon our life as our creator. But notice here that God's plans are never thwarted. Our puny, self-focused plans do not disrupt God. There are two ways that God's sovereignty is upheld here. Firstly, uh, the vineyard will be given to others. Look at verse 9. What then will the owner of the vineyard do, he will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Rejection of the son means it's time up for the tenants. The role of caring for the vineyard will be taken from the Jewish leaders and given to others. The apostles and to the Christian church made up of Jewish and Gentile people from the nations. Secondly, the rejected son will be seen as central and marvelous. And Jesus goes on to quote from uh, Psalm 118. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. 
The Lord has done this and it is marvellous in our eyes. The Messiah will be rejected, but God will make him to be the most important foundational one in all of history, in all of his purposes. The the suffering and cross of Jesus Christ will be a marvellous victory and the beginning of a new temple for the people of God. So how should we respond? For them, fear of the people is the thing that holds them back from arresting Jesus. I mean, they're dug in too deep. They refuse to change their opinions about Jesus. And so they regroup and they try another plan in verses 13 to 17, as we'll see in a moment. But what about us? How are we responding to Jesus? Do we acknowledge God's rightful rule over our lives, that Jesus is God's son who has the right to tell us how to live our life? How are we responding to him? I mean, the correct response is taught by Jesus in the next conflict story in verses 13 to 17. Uh, Look at verse 13. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. Now, the word catch here has the sense of violent pursuit. This is not an honest search for truth as we've seen. This is a hunting expedition. They're trying to get him. And they start with this kind of ironic and smarmy introduction. Teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the poll tax to Caesar or not? Now, taxes are always a big issue, aren't they? And they were a huge issue in Israel at that time, as it was a time when everyone had to pay taxes to their hated Roman occupiers. And once again, they must have reasoned they had him either way. If Jesus said yes, it would make him unpopular with the people. If he says no, well, that's going to bring him in conflict with the Roman authorities and bring them against Jesus. And that's what they want. So the answer that Jesus gives is is breathtaking. And it leaves them amazed. He's not suckered by their false admiration. Uh, As it says here, Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin. And he asked them, whose image is this? And whose inscription? Caesar, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Yeah, a brilliant answer. But consider the implications of what Jesus says. Whose image? Well, something that bears the image of Caesar belongs to Caesar. But think about the logic of that. Whatever belongs to the image of God, belongs to God. And Genesis chapter 1 makes it clear that men and women bear the image of God uniquely in God's creation. Every one of us. Jesus is the son who came to claim what God is due. And what God is due is each one of us. We are God's possession. He created us and he has 
rights over us. And it's, it's a right that's over every aspect of our lives, not just kind of religious bits on the occasional Sunday or special day. No, he has rights over the whole of our life. And God had sent his son to claim what is rightfully his. And those who fail to honour the son will face God's judgment, just as surely as the tenants eventually get kicked out of the vineyard. By whose authority did Jesus have the right to disturb the temple? Well, the authority of being the Son of God. And by that same authority, he has the right to disturb our lives and be at the center of our whole lives. The central claim of Christianity is Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the one through whom we were created. And wonderfully, it was through his rejection and death for us on the cross that there is a way of forgiveness and grace for rebels who've kept refusing to acknowledge him in their lives. And when we see the identity and the mission of Jesus clearly, you will see what amazing grace God has for us in Jesus. And Jesus will be marvelous in our eyes. He'll be everything for us. I mean, that's why as a church, it never gets old to us to declare the excellent glories of of what God has done for us in Jesus. The leaders of Israel, by the end of the week, must have thought that they were right in their rejection of Jesus. Crucified in shame and ignominy, buried, well, they proved Jesus was utterly worthless to their way of thinking. But here we are in Scotland, or wherever you're watching this around the world, in 2021 and we're part of a worldwide church that declares the worth and the glory of Jesus the son of God is our savior and king the one who was rejected is the only way of salvation the one who was killed was raised and is our only hope in life and death and we're going to rejoice in this by singing our final song my friends You are no fool to live with Jesus as your rightful King and Saviour, the Lord over your life. And that gives us profound hope and assurance and confidence, even in the difficulties and struggles and suffering that we find around us today.